0: you would take your Bibles and turn to the letter of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, we have the blessing of being in verses 5 and 6 this morning. As many of you know, even firsthand, entering the military is a life-altering decision. No matter what branch of the military you join, there is a requirement to go through some sort of training that we typically call basic training. And while I admit I've never been through basic training, my father was in the army and many of my friends have been through basic training and have told me some of what it is like. And it's clear to me that one of the primary objectives of basic training is to transform a person from a civilian to a soldier. To do that, everything about life is regulated. When you sleep, where you sleep, what you eat, how long you have to eat it, your activities you'll be doing during the day. Your contact with the outside world, even the way you cut your hair, the way that you dress, everything is regulated by the military. And most who have gone through basic training describe it as a a stressful time. We would assume it would be physically demanding, but they also describe it as being mentally stressful and difficult. But the end result, if you pass basic training, is this sense of not only accomplishment, but of belonging, you are now part of something bigger than yourself. You are in the club, so to speak. And this military club comes with its own costume, its own lingo, its own hierarchy, and even way of thinking. From now on, for you, people fall into two categories. They are either military or civilian. And what I've found in talking to friends who have spent many years in the military is that after retirement, the adjustment back to civilian life can be a bumpy ride, particularly if they spent any significant time in active combat. The way of living life on the battlefield, as you can imagine, is much different than our ordinary civilian lifestyle. Some of them come back and they find it difficult to relate to civilians, and some of them, if they're honest, find out they don't really even like civilians all that much. They, they view them as out of touch with the rest of the world, not really understanding things as they are. And I think we can all understand how that mentality can be tempting for someone who has spent their entire career in a military environment. But my fear this morning is that some of us have experienced a very similar reality in a different realm. Many, if not most of us here this morning, are Christians. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into this new family called the church. In our case, conversion to Christianity involves much more than just deciding that we will identify with a new group of people. To be a true Christian means that God himself has done a transforming work in our hearts, and we literally are not the same people we used to be. We don't talk the same way. We don't think the same way. We, we have new hobbies, new friends, and new life priorities. And now all people on the planet are separated into two groups. They are believers or unbelievers. And the truth is, the longer that we're in Christ and the more deeply entrenched we become in the life of the church, the more difficult and frankly uncomfortable it can be to interact with unbelievers. The temptation then is simply to to fill the entirety of our lives with only Christian friends and to do our level best to cut off every connection with the outside world. The only problem with that mentality, of course, is that it's not biblical. It's true that God has saved us out of the world and brought us into this new glorious family called the body of Christ. And we should relish the sweet community that we have. I love the sweet community that we have. And I would even say it's right and biblical that our nearest and dearest, closest friends and relationships should be those within the church. But when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven after his resurrection, he left his disciples with a mandate that would be passed down from one generation of Christians to the next. And in that mandate, he did not say, I'm about to ascend into heaven, therefore go and huddle together in isolation from the unbelieving world and wait until I return. He said, go and make disciples. And once you have made a disciple, baptize that disciple and then teach that disciple all things that I have commanded you. And here is my promise, Jesus said, I will be with you as you do this to the end of the age. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to help us think biblically about our responsibility towards unbelievers. And he's going to help us understand how it is that the the gospel's transforming effect in our life should transform our interactions with the lost. As we said last week, we're now in the final teaching section of Colossians here in chapter 4. After today's message, Paul enters into a section that's really closing remarks, closing up the letter. And so it's here that we find his, his final thoughts, his final admonitions for the Colossians and therefore, us. Let's read this text again together. We began in verse 2 last week, and for the sake of context, let's begin there again and read through verse 6. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As we said last week, this text, verses 2 to 6, is neatly divided into two commands. The first command we addressed last week, command number one, be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. But secondly, this week, he commands us to be wise towards unbelievers. Be wise towards unbelievers. And here is the main idea of this wonderful text. It's really simple and straightforward. Every Christian is to be marked by devotion to prayer and gospel advancement. Every Christian is to be marked by devotion to prayer and gospel advancement. Last week, we saw Christians are to be marked by prayer. Prayer is to be as natural and continuous for us as believers as breathing. Paul explained, really, three things. Devote ourselves to prayer. Keep alert in prayer. That is, looking at every situation for an avenue to pray. And to always pray with gratitude or with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And then he closed out the message last week by asking the Colossians to pray for two things specifically for he and his companions. He said, I want you to pray for gospel opportunity, that God would open doors for us to share the gospel, even in his imprisonment, and that when those doors are open, secondly, pray for gospel faithfulness, that we will be faithful to share the gospel as we should, not pulling punches, but sharing it clearly as it ought to be shared. And it's important for us to understand this morning as we enter into verses 5 and 6 that Paul still has this issue of evangelism on the brain. We're still in the same mental flow discussing evangelism, only now he's going to turn the tables from discussing evangelism in his life and ministry to ours. That brings us into verse 5 and the second command to be wise towards Unbelievers. Let's look together again at verse 5. It begins, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. The command, here's the word conduct. Uh, the only issue is that that's not the actual word that Paul uses. It gets at the meaning of the word, but the real word that Paul uses is the word walk. That's one of his favorite words when he's talking about our life. He, so we could say walk with wisdom. That is, the course of your life should be done in. With wisdom, and it is a present tense command, as we've said before, which is continuous action. We are to be continually walking, living, or as the NAS has it, conducting our lives with wisdom. But also, the word order is is different in the Greek text, specifically to emphasize uh, not just the command, but what's modifying the command—that word wisdom. Here's a literal translation of of the order of the Greek text. He says, In wisdom, walk towards those outside. In wisdom, walk toward those outside. Walk, then, obviously, is our our pattern of life, and it's to be continuous, but but it's to be bound or, or filled with or defined by wisdom. Now, if wisdom is the the overarching idea, if it's the main thing that Paul wants us to get here, then we have to obviously understand what he means by the word wisdom. And We've talked about this before, but when the Bible uses the word wisdom, it means something more than just knowledge. Knowledge is emphasized in the scripture. Clearly, we must have knowledge. We must understand and know the truth. But wisdom takes knowledge into action. Think of it this way. Wisdom is the bridge between knowledge and action. It's the bridge between knowledge and action. That is to say, a wise person, according to the scriptures, not only knows the truth, but has become skilled at applying that truth to life situations. That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge lived out. Knowledge, of course, is essential. If we don't have it, then we won't even know what we're supposed to do. But wisdom is equally essential because it ensures that knowledge becomes practical, that we live it out, that our feet follow the way of truth. Paul's already emphasized this view of wisdom back all the way in chapter 1 of Colossians when, when he told us what he was praying for the Colossians. Listen to this, Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see that? He says, we're praying that you'll be filled with wisdom so that that it will result in you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So wisdom then is is given by God, and we can grow in wisdom as we mature in our faith. But the wisdom that Paul has in mind here is not just wisdom, broadly speaking. He has a very defined and narrow focus in these verses. When he says, I want you to walk continuously in wisdom, he has one group of people in mind uh, towards whom we should walk in wisdom. He says, toward outsiders, Toward outsiders. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. As we said earlier, Christians uh, ha- have a mentality, a biblical mentality of, of seeing people in one of two categories. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. And that's biblical. That's how Paul explains that he sees the world here in this text. He calls them outsiders. That is a, a common Uh, way that Paul refers to unbelievers. We see it in a couple of different places. In the context of discussing church discipline, he brings it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says in verse 12, "...for what have I to do with judging outsiders," it's unbelievers, "...outside the church? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked men from among yourselves." So we, church discipline is a process which we, we do judge those within the church and set them outside if, if they are unrepentant. But he says unbelievers are outside the church, and God is the one who will ultimately judge them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he uses the same term. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at the end of verse 12, he says, "...but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more." and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So here it is. Paul is turning the tables. At the end of our text last time, he said, I want you to pray for me to have opportunity and to be faithful. And now he says, I want you to walk with wisdom as you interact with unbelievers. He's calling us to follow his pattern. But that, of course, brings up the question, what would it look like? If if we were to walk faithfully in wisdom towards unbelievers or outsiders, what exactly does Paul have in mind about our life pattern? Well, he's going to mention two specific aspects of life. Obviously, there are more than this, but there are two specific aspects of our lives that he has in mind that we must make sure that we use wisdom When interacting with unbelievers, I'll just give them to you up front. Aspect number one is wisdom with our time. Wisdom with our time. And then aspect number two is wisdom with our speech. Wisdom with our time and wisdom with our speech. The first of those aspects is here in verse 5. Look back at verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Making the most of the opportunity, that's wisdom with our time. Literally, that phrase, making the most of the opportunity, means to redeem the time or buy the time, B-U-Y. buy the time, redeem the time. Make the most of the time. In fact, the word opportunity is not actually there, it's a word for time. Make the most of the time, that is the time that you have on this planet to interact with unbelievers And specifically, every opportunity that God brings your way to do so. Paul uses the same phrase with both the Ephesians and the Galatians. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Very similar phrase, because the days are evil. To the Galatians, in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, here's our phrase, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So when we survey these these this phrase in these different contexts, and we come back to Colossians, it's it's clear that this fits very well within Paul's first prayer request for himself last week, that he would have open doors. He said, I want you to pray that I'll have opportunity, and I want you to use wisdom towards unbelievers, which means you need to make the most of the opportunities that God gives to you. That's what it looks like to walk in wisdom towards unbelievers. It looks like not wasting our time, not wasting the opportunity the gospel and the sin, insinuation of course is not that we stay in our homes and wait for someone to come and ring our doorbell and ask us to please share the gospel with them the idea is that we are faithful to be looking for opportunities uh, to, to, to really change the way we view life to see every interaction as a potential opportunity for the gospel when you walk out the door of your house it's likely near several other houses, perhaps filled with unbelievers. There's an opportunity. When you sit down to get your haircut, for those of us that still have some. When you're flying on a, on a plane, when you take your kids to the park, when you go to work, when you stand in line at the grocery store, you're looking at a, a, a harvest field that's ripe and ready for evangelism. And just remember the context that Paul is in and what he said last week. He told the Philippians, look, my imprisonment has actually turned out for the the betterment of the gospel. The gospel is going forth with with more passion and more people are sharing because of my imprisonment. So he even saw that situation as an opportunity. How much more then do we live surrounded by gospel opportunity in, in a country that still happens to be the freest nation on the planet? I couldn't help but being convicted this last week as I was thinking of the fact that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan who are huddling in their homes hiding because if they're found out, they'll be killed for their faith. And yet all too often, we here in our free country hide in our homes because we're tired or busy or just honestly afraid that if we happen to share with our neighbors, they might think we're weird or they might look at us funny. So we just stay in the house. Paul's reminding us that as Christians, we are recipients of a commission, a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, and that commission then should be the lens through which we view life. It is true that we are to live real human lives. You're to get up and go to school or go to work, provide for your family, save for retirement, educate your children, take them to soccer games, enjoy appropriate forms of entertainment, take vacations, do all of those things through this lens. Go and make disciples. It affects all of that, every aspect of our life. In fact, let's just read the Great Commission again. I don't think we can ever read it too many times. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Now, most commentators believe, as I do, that that group there that was standing there listening to this commission is, is beyond just the 11 remaining apostles, and it includes a group called the 500. This is a group that Peter refers to, or that Paul refers to, rather, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a large group of followers that are there witnessing this message from Jesus just before he ascends into heaven. And that's important for us to to remember because this is not a commission that was just given to the apostles so that when they died, the commission ended with them. The idea is that all of my disciples are to be disciple makers. And, of course, when we say that, we know that God is the one that saves. But it's Jesus himself who says, go, therefore, and make disciples. We must be faithful to preach the gospel so that God can work through the gospel as the means through which he saves His people. And the crowd that day included people that Jesus knew were not apostles and would not go on to be pastors or elders or deacons. Though some of them would be set apart to do those roles. He knew that it was just regular people by and large. It had real jobs and real families. And he wasn't saying all of you quit your employment and do this. He was saying some of you will be set apart to do that. But all of you in your sphere of life go and make disciples. Therefore, as we think about our lives, making the most of opportunity means that we need to be planning to find intentional ways to facilitate and even create opportunities within our normal sphere of life that God's put us in for the sake of the gospel. It means we're going to have to be intentional, we're going to have to be thoughtful and prayerful about evangelism. It means we're going to have to look at our perspective and say, am am I looking for great commission opportunities in all of the relationships and organizations and activities that I'm involved in? When you step back and think of it, every conversation you participate in is a potential for either discipleship or evangelism. Pastor Rocky at Countryside used to say that all the time. Really, you're either talking to a believer and therefore you have an opportunity perhaps to encourage them in their faith and discipleship or you're talking to an unbeliever and you have perhaps an opportunity to share the gospel. But there is always great commission work to be done no matter who you're talking to. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, that every conversation you have with anyone must always be directly about the gospel or or systematic theology. But it does mean that evangelism and discipleship should be our overarching goal in our relationships. I may not talk with him about the gospel today, but it's part of my whatever we're talking about it becomes part of my plan to get to the point where I can share the gospel with him. That's the idea. In fact, this is the heart behind the the ministry in our church we call Reach. When we planted the the church, we wanted to create space in the church calendar to have opportunities in our busy lives to prioritize evangelism. And so we block off the fourth week of every month. If you look at the church calendar, we intentionally block that off from small groups and other activities so that none of us have an excuse for not prioritizing evangelism. That's the week uh, that we have people over for the sake of the gospel, or we go to the park, or we do whatever it is, looking for opportunities to share our faith. The question really is, how much time do you spend in a given month praying and planning for evangelistic opportunities? What specific unbelievers right now are you regularly bringing to the Lord in prayer by name for their salvation? How often do you pray for and look for intentional conversations throughout your day that will turn into gospel conversations? Based on this text, I I would encourage all of us to do a sort of great commission opportunity survey of our lives Write down the people that God's placed in your sphere of influence your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your kid's soccer coach, and so on and so forth. Who are those people? Write them down. Begin to pray and look for opportunities and then just pick one. Say, This month, I'm going to do my level best to talk to this person by God's grace and share the gospel. Then engage your small group and other accountability partners and ask for their prayer in that, to hold you accountable. This is what it looks like to live in community together and to, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to, to bring the gospel to bear on the lives of others and to do it together collectively as a body of believers. I don't know about you, but I sense an urgency behind Paul's words. When he says, redeem the time, Make the best use of your time for the opportunity of of the gospel. The idea is because you won't always have that time. In the Greek, he says the time, that is a specified amount of time that God has given to us. Brings to mind Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Life is short. Redeem the time. Buy back the time and use it for great commission work. I was reminded this week of the famous and convicting words of C.T. Studd when he said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. May that moniker seep into our hearts. Paul wants us to stir stir up our motivation. He wants to awaken us from complacency in life and just getting caught in our, our normal routines, good routines, good things that we're a part of, but that can lull us to sleep as to what we're really to be doing here and what this life is all about. And so in summary, the first key to living with wisdom towards unbelievers, Paul says, is to make the most of every opportunity to use your time well for the sake of the gospel. But there's a second aspect of the way that we are to think about our lives as it relates to relationships with unbelievers, and this comes in verse 6. He says in verse 6, Let your speech always be. We'll stop there. Let your speech Always be. This is aspect number two wisdom with our speech. Not only with our time, but with the way we speak. That word there, or that group of words, let your speech, goes back to wisdom. It's modifying wisdom on another way, another example of how we use wisdom towards unbelievers. And it's a good reminder that, as we said before, the gospel transforms our lives, and that means every part of us, including the way we speak. There should be a marked difference between the way a believer speaks and the way an unbeliever speaks, both in the the content and even in the manner in which speech is conveyed. And the fact that that he includes the word always here is really instructive for us. Let your speech always be. What is he saying? He's saying just by that little inclusion of the word always that every single conversation is to be defined by what he's about to give us. That, that is every theological conversation, every gospel conversation, and every conversation that's about anything else. All of it is to be transformed. It should be different than your unbelieving friend, neighbor, family member. Both in the choice of words and the manner of your tone as you speak those words. So when the Christian then joins in the water cooler discussions at work or or wherever else, discussing sports or weather or cultural events, even in that, there should be something different about the way we speak. But the real question is how? In what way should our speech be different from unbelievers? Well, this is where Paul begins to describe our speech. Verse 6, let your speech always be, he's going to give us two things ultimately, but the first one is with grace. Let your speech always be with grace, or we could translate it gracious. The word grace here is is used in this context in in a way that's different than we might use it in a theological context. Remember that, that context is what determines what a word means, and words can be used differently depending on the time and place in which they're used. In Paul's culture, when, when they use the word grace to describe speech, it meant what we would say is gracious is a better way to translate it. Here's a good definition of how the word is used in this particular instance. It is a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. So it could be translated graciousness, attractiveness, charm, or winsomeness. The idea is that the believer's speech is to be attractive, attractive even to the unbeliever. And now when you think about it, there are several qualities of of Christian speech that come to mind that should be present and should be attractive. Things like humility, genuine concern, optimism, kindness, purity in our speech, selflessness, hope in God, love, patience even reasonableness. These are just some of the examples of of how the Holy Spirit works on our character to produce the fruit of the Spirit, and that fruit comes pouring out of our mouth in how we speak. When your speech exhibits these kinds of qualities, unbelievers take notice. It stands out. It's different to them, and perhaps for some, even attractive. Attractive. But Paul goes on to describe us a second way in which our speech is to be transformed that really is a way of expounding upon graciousness. Not only should our, our words be gracious, but Paul goes on there in verse 6 to say, let your speech always be with grace, and secondly, as those seasoned with salt. As those seasoned with salt. Now, salt was used for a variety of different purposes in the ancient world. It was used medicinally. For example, it was also used for preservation as they didn't have refrigeration for their foods. They would use salt. But it was also used for the thing that it's probably most commonly used for today, which is to season food. And that's the illustration that Paul is using here. He says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Obviously, the point of adding salt to your food is to add taste and flavor. It makes food more palatable, enjoyable. And that's the idea here that Paul's getting across, that our speech should be attractive. It should be palatable. It should be enjoyable to all people. Now, don't misunderstand me. Neither I nor Paul are suggesting that we should pull punches in the things that we talk about or avoid subjects that might make people uncomfortable. Remember, he just prayed, asked us to pray, that he would make it clear, right? He's not saying, so just don't bring up anything that would offend anybody and you'll be fine. He's saying... Whatever you're talking about, it should still be salted. It should still be spoken in such a way that the true heart of Christ is exhibited even about hard things. That's what he's describing for us. He's not insinuating that we don't bring up the truth or just dance around the truth. He's saying you need to think about the way you express both casual things and difficult things. Think of it this way. It's like the difference in interacting with two doctors who are equally knowledgeable about their field, but one possesses a great bedside manner and the other does not. Both deliver to you the same information, but after one you leave the doctor's office feeling not only informed but cared for, and the other informed and offended. Not offended by what they said, but the carelessness and the coldness with which they said it. Listen to how Paul says this similarly in two places to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. Notice that, speaking the truth. So, telling it how it is, telling telling people what the truth is in love. Love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And then perhaps the best example, the clearest example in Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But only such a word as is good for edification, that is, for building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. I love that verse. According to the need of the moment. Think about it. Think about what you say and how you say it. Let it be fitting for the need of the moment, that the end result would be that you give grace to those who hear. I was struck by William Hendrickson in his commentary on this passage, as he described what he calls uh, the skill of tactfulness. He says, really what Paul is saying is we have to develop tactfulness, and this is how he defines it. It is the skill which, without any sacrifice of honesty or candor, enables a person to speak the right word at the right time and to do the proper thing in any given situation. The tactful person does not shirk his duty even when he's convinced that he must admonish or rebuke. But he has learned the art of doing this without being rude. He is humble, patient, and kind. This is wisdom in action. Tactfulness, if you will, in our speech. And so in summary of this section, as Christians, one of the ways we walk with wisdom towards unbelievers is by speaking gracious words that are seasoned with salt and show genuine care for other people without compromising truth. And Paul's point is that this kind of speech captures the attention of unbelievers. A couple of years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel, even with some of you who went with us uh, with our sending church, Countryside Bible Church. And one afternoon we were on a a trip being led through the streets of Jerusalem and these streets were lined with all kinds of shops. Now don't picture a strip mall or the South Lake Town Square. Picture, Picture old, old cobblestone streets, hundreds of years old, lined with old shops of all kinds with souvenirs and food and art and all kinds of things that they think a tourist might want to buy. And after a while of walking through these busy, crowded, narrow streets, it's easy to get turned around. It's a little bit like a maze, particularly for us who've never been on these streets before. You can't see past the buildings because they go straight up, and you kind of get turned around. And eventually, you find yourself sort of mindlessly mingling your way through these streets, uh, glancing into shops, careful not to make eye contact with the shop owner so he doesn't run out and try to sell you something and trying not to get run over by motorcycles and cars squeezing their way through this alleyway. And I remember that in that kind of chaotic atmosphere, at one point I turned a corner and something stopped me in my tracks. Something grabbed my attention. And it wasn't something I saw, it wasn't something I heard, it was something I could smell. Somewhere nearby, someone was baking fresh bread. And that smell cut through the chaos of everything around Suddenly, my sole ambition was to find the source of that smell. And sure enough, there it was, this old bakery. It looked like it had been there for hundreds of years, perhaps passed down from generation to generation. And loading this cart with fresh baked bread to roll it out and to sell. You know, I thought about it. That's the way the Christian speech is to capture the attention and intrigue of unbelievers. In this fallen world, the unbeliever lives with a constant inundation of sinful speech, filthy language, sexual language, self-centered language, godless language, angry speech, thoughtless words, blasphemous words. And that sinful speech becomes like that crowded street. It's mind-numbingly busy. It's overwhelming. It's all-consuming. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, there enters this fresh aroma of a new way of speaking, a different kind of speech, an intriguing way of speaking that's attractive. Hendrickson says it this way, it's as if the apostle were saying, behave wisely towards outsiders, always bearing in mind that though few men read the sacred scrolls, all men read you. And that's why Paul closes verse 6 with these words. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. So that you will know how you should respond to each person. This last phrase explains... The reason that Paul has said that we must be filled with wisdom in our speech, because there are going to be questions that arise naturally in conversation, perhaps even about why you are the way you are and why you talk the way you talk. And he says, "Be ready that you will know how to respond to each person." Peter says a very similar thing in First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse 13. He says, "Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good?" But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, and listen to this, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Part of using wisdom in our speech is understanding that each encounter deserves careful thought, careful consideration in how we are to respond. That's why he says each one, how you should respond to each one. Paul's painting a picture of a Christian who is involved in the public sphere of life and therefore interacting regularly with unbelievers on a range of different topics and subjects. And in each situation, the Christian must apply wisdom in his or her speech so that he knows how to choose the appropriate words and tone that will have the greatest impact for Christ. James Dunn says it this way, the final exhortation explicitly envisages a church in communication with those around it not cut off in a holy huddle speaking only the language of Zion to insiders but engaged in regular conversation with others and in such a way as to allow plenty of opportunity to bear testimony to their faith now I know that each one of us could readily admit that we could share the gospel more should share the gospel more I also know that perhaps you're here this morning and the truth is you, you do want to share the gospel. You have a desire to do that. You see the need to do that. But if, if you're being honest, you feel very nervous to do that, perhaps ill-equipped to do that. Because of that, it's my plan that after Colossians to do a special message on how to share your faith. How do we share the gospel? What is the clear message of the gospel and how do we effectively communicate that? Just in the in spirit of trying to equip us to be busy about the Great Commission. Because regardless of our personality, introvert, extrovert, or anywhere in between, the command is the same. Go and make disciples. But also realize that maybe some of you are here and you're confused as to why in the world Paul would insist that we put forth so much effort towards this thing called the gospel. Maybe the idea of even thinking about sharing the gospel with someone at work or your neighbor... This makes no sense to you. Why would you go out of your way to do that? If that's the case, then then let me just ask you to consider a question. What is the gospel? If someone were to ask you, what is the gospel, what would you say? Because if it's never occurred to you that the gospel is of such intrinsic value that we should seek to share it with others, then perhaps the honest truth is you've never really understood the gospel. See, the reason that Paul is so consumed with the gospel is because the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, the way that men, the only way that men and women can come to know God. It's the only way that they must come to God and be saved. The Bible says that every one of us have sinned against a holy God. We've broken his law and we are guilty before him. And the Bible says the penalty for that guilt is eternal punishment in hell. That's what, if God gave us justice, if He just gave us what we deserved, that would be our reality forever. But the good news of the gospel is that for all who understand who Jesus is, that Jesus was God in human flesh who lived an actual perfect life and gave that life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him and then rose again from the grave. For those who understand that and believe that with their whole heart and are willing to turn from their sinful way of living to follow after Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. Saved from the wrath of God over your sin, And instead of hell for all eternity, be adopted into his family and be with him forever. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it either. I pray that if you're here this morning and you've never come to the place where you've truly understood that good news and placed your faith and trust solely in Jesus, that today would be that day. But for those of us here in the church who who are believers, there are some some important truths from this text that we need to consider as we draw our message to a close. And really, I want to challenge you in in two areas, and they're they're the two areas that Paul has challenged us in this morning. Regarding our relationships with unbelievers, I want to call you to evaluate two things. Number one, evaluate the use of your time. Evaluate the use of your time. If you're honest this morning, how much intentional prayer and thought have you given to sharing the gospel? Have you given to sharing the gospel with those in your sphere of influence? Have you fallen into the trap of, of isolating yourself and your family so much from unbelievers in an attempt to remain uninfluenced by them that you failed to make opportunities for them to be influenced by you? Let me especially give an encouragement to those of us who are parents What are we teaching our kids by our actions and the way we speak and act towards unbelievers? Are we modeling for our kids that they should love unbelievers and seek to share the gospel with unbelievers or simply avoid them and hide from them to avoid any possible influence from them? You see, we are to protect our kids from the sinful influence of the world. We are to do that. That's part of our calling as parents. But we're also to teach them to love and imitate the Lord Jesus Christ And Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so our kids should learn from us that they should be cautious and and on guard against the sinful influence of the world, but they should also learn that they should run out into the world to seek and save that which was lost. Share the gospel with them. Secondly, evaluate the quality of your speech. Evaluate the quality of your speech. Is your speech as a general pattern gracious? As Paul says, seasoned with salt. Do you reflect a heart that's been transformed by the gospel both in what you say and the way you say it? Would the unbelievers that you interact with on a regular basis even be suspicious that you're a Christian based on the way you speak? Would your manner of speaking capture the attention an intrigue of an unbeliever like a capturing aroma. Paul's intention here is that we walk with wisdom towards unbelievers by the use of our time and by the quality of our speech. I pray that these are ways that we will be transformed in increasing measure, that we might be more faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, these are... They're convicting things for us. We, we know we never really share the gospel as, as much as we should. We know that we, we fail every day. We need the gospel in our own lives. And also, we need to be expressing the truth of the gospel to others. And we pray that you'd help us to be faithful to that end. Thank you for these reminders today. May our time and our speech be dedicated to you for the expansion of your kingdom. Give us boldness. Give us clarity but also give us humility and grace. May there be a balance in which we never forsake the gospel or shortchange the gospel, and yet while we, all, we always express it with true love and genuine care. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.